Welcome back to Radcliffe Tech Conversations. This is Dr. Jacek Kolasinski, your host. In this episode, Maggie Salazamara is going to speak with Jerry Leo, the media executive and former EVP at Bravo. I want to welcome back our audience and our listeners to Tech Conversations at Florida International University's Radcliffe Art and Design Incubator in season four. And I have the honorable pleasure and surprising enthusiasm to welcome in Jerry Leo, television executive, recently the chief content officer at Canela Media, and prior to that, spent a great deal amount of time at NBC Universal and Paramount. And he's going to talk to us about some of the shows that our audience might be very familiar with. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you, Maggie. Nice to be here. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us and My kind pleasure. of shed some light on some of the things that I even ask you about in off-topic conversations about the Housewives and all the other Bravo shows um, that have become so near and dear to our hearts. So I think the first question that we ask all our guests is, you know, talk about your journey. How did you become interested in media? Give us some background. Yeah, so I was an unusual kid. I uh, was born and raised in um, Utica, New York. And I was interested in television from a very young age. I had a TV guide subscription from the fourth grade on. And then I was interested in just learning um, as much as I could about television programming. Uh, I was, people would buy me books like the Encyclopedia of Television and I would just study it. And um, I would beg people to buy me Variety or Hollywood Reporter if they visited a big city like New York City or Los Angeles on a vacation. I'd say, and in lieu of a souvenir, can you just bring me back Variety or Hollywood Reporter? Because in the 80s, they, there was no you know, access to those kinds of things. There was no internet and stuff. So I needed to read about them. So I was really passionate about television and not just TV, but movies and music and pop culture going all the way back uh, to being a little kid and um, was studying the business even then. And I knew I wanted to be in television. And then um, I was able to, you know, uh, went to a community college for a couple of years and then transferred to Newhouse at Syracuse University, um, where I majored in television and, and uh, film management, television, radio, and film management. And um, and I graduated there and then I got an internship at NBC um, way back in the late 80s. And then um, uh, was in the complaint department of that place called <laughs> Audience Services and then ended up getting recruited again the next year in 1988. Uh, for the Summer Olympics and doing the complaints, you know, managing all the feedback, audience feedback before the internet. We needed that. We tallied that on the phone. And I did that for, you know, as a way of getting back in the company. And then eventually I was hired and I worked in corporate communications and I worked in sales. I worked on award shows, um, you know, working with talent uh, as an assistant. And eventually I went to MTV and was an assistant there in production and then in programming. And then I went back into more production 
And then eventually I got hired to work as the assistant to the head of programming at VH1, a guy named Jeff Gaspin. And I worked for him and worked on programming production at VH1. And then um, he moved on, he moved back to NBC. And I stayed at VH1 and went from an assistant up to a vice president eventually. And at that point, Jeff, a few years, about three years later, Jeff became the head of Bravo at NBC and he invited me to join him again. So I joined my boss that I was an assistant for. I joined him as a vice president and um, his number two at VH1 was Lauren Zelastic and she was our president at Bravo. So I worked for both of them as a VP of programming at Bravo. And so um, I think, I think my next question is, you know, you've had a stellar career um, at both what is, um, you know, was Paramount, um, it was Viacom before that, NBC Universal. So I think your, 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 your big work is really um, working with other franchises that Bravo is known for, you know, in the last decade or so. Talk a little bit about where the idea to really revamp Bravo and bring in these big properties comes in. You know, we talk about um, Below Deck, Southern Charm, Shaws of Sunset, you know, the housewives, who can forget that, right? They're still living on Peacock with a big controversy and, and right I, now. And, and that's true. And, and a Bravo, of course. Yeah, so and, what, um, yeah, sorry. How does the rollout look like? Tell us how that came about because I think that's interesting to everybody. Okay, so when I joined Bravo, it was already in a, a, a rebrand phase. Uh, my boss uh, was Francis Barrick, and who I worked for for almost 15 years. And the, she came from Rainbow, uh, where the other company that owned Bravo before NBC Universal. And they, it was there they developed uh, Queer Eye for a Straight Guy. And then um, when I joined Project Runway season one, just had a season finale. So um, I joined as it was evolving. And then I, uh, I, my very first day, there was an offsite so house and we watched the pilots for Behind the Gates, which became the Real Housewives of Orange uh -huh. County on my very first day, as well as Top Chef, um, which was called Top Chef at that time. So two huge franchises were literally there on my very first day um so it's just a matter of green lighting them and and then getting them um on the lineup and so real housewives of orange county was uh at a time when desperate housewives was doing really well so um it was kind of the real version of that in a way <laughs> and um we added the it was a marketing team that added the words orange county because remember oc was so popular show at that time and Laguna Beach on MTV was popular. So we thought that would be a cool idea. The Real Housewives of Orange County, really long title. So, but I knew it was gonna be, a, I knew it was my big bullet. I knew it was really important um, to, the, to the brand. Uh, even from the very beginning, I was very excited. So we, we gave it a lead in a blowout, a show about a hairstylist that was very popular at the time, Jonathan Anton um, was the protagonist of that. So um, it launched and it did pretty good. Uh, and at that time, we had uh, a bunch of other shows that were around, um, including a pilot and a new series in the works called Manhattan Moms. And then the decision was to fold that into the Real Housewives umbrella. Um, and, and that would be the Real Housewives of New York City. 
So that came um, a year later. And then a few years later, Project Runway, which was our big show, um, we, uh, we, we lost that show to, in, in a lawsuit and it ended up going to Lifetime. And so mm-hmm. their idea was you're losing your biggest show. You have to add more housewives to maintain the kind of um, impressions that you needed. So we added two more Real Housewives of Atlanta, um, which was called Hotlanta as a pilot, and the Real Housewives of New Jersey. Um, at the time, Sopranos had ended, and we thought um, there was an idea that was in house development. There was an idea that uh, the movie Godfather always rated really well at Bravo, so it would be interesting to see if that could transfer, you know, uh, you know, kind of almost uh, mob related woman on some level. Um, <laughs> but they were really, they weren't really in the mob, but they were just people that had the essence of, of tough. Um, tough New Jersey ladies. Um, and that, that became the Real Housewives of New Jersey. So we, we had built this, this ecosystem. And it was interesting because um, I was involved in the, all the scheduling and uh, strategy of all of that. And there was a decision to rotate all of them once a year. And a lot of discussions of, you know, can you have more than one on at the same time? Can you have them air back to back? There's all sorts of um, evolutions of that of the strategy but for the most part they only aired once a year every one of them and we rotated them um you know and then kept adding more and more uh so it's amazing and that was let uh, me let me ask you let me ask you something because a lot of people listening to the podcast might be wondering you know you have these franchises that we all have come to know and love at least i think most of america and international too um how do you cast these ladies like New York, New Jersey, the OC, Beverly Hills, Miami, which now lives on Peacock? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, production companies, they had various, various production companies um, would, would do casting and they would oversee a different production companies, oversee different shows. Um, and so that that's, uh, you know, it came from them. It, it came, you know, with casting searches were going out and, and I was one of the leadership team that would watch the casting um, and development offsites and sort of evaluate that and see, do we have the right cast? Do we have a strong enough cast, um, you know, and which cast members do we like best? Uh, all of that was decided. Um, but there are people who uh, were really amazing at production that really drove a lot of that. Andy Cohen was a, a business person at that time on the team. Um, Sherry Levine, who I worked really closely with, she um, had was an expert at casting. Amy Jacasso Davis, who's now a discovery she she was amazing also at casting had worked in casting before that so they that you know and francis was very talented at it so we had a lot of strong um execs working on all these shows my my mission was to figure out how to expand how to build, have these shows on and they were doing well after a few years but also try to have a destination of a show every single night and in those days you know was not was before dvrs and before streaming so we really wanted to build night by night seamlessly all year long so people would come to bravo every night and so um on tuesdays it was the kind of the expert night um so we would put a large personalities and expert shows so it was million dollar listing um it was kathy griffin um Mm -hmm. in her show it was workout with uh, uh this woman by the name of jackie warner um there was uh, a flipping out with Jeff Lewis 
and it, it was they're all yeah and so it was seamlessly always have these kind of expert experts in the show um or a strong personality like a kathy and um so that was the tuesday strategy and real housewives was also there sometimes wednesday was our competition night that's where top chef and project runway lived um we also did a haircut uh haircutting competition called sheer genius mm-hmm. and a design competition called top design a lot of other food shows came and went as well and then um we kept trying to build out to other nights and um, eventually shows like uh, Vanderpump Rules, which spun off Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Uh, cast member Lisa Vanderpump and featured her restaurant called Sir. That came along. Um, Shaw's of Sunset was just this incredible pilot that we had seen with a cast of people that we had never really seen on television before. And they had this fantastic friendship. Um, you know, with there were cast members from middle from Middle Eastern descent uh, who lived in Los Angeles. We just thought it was such a strong, strong, bold presentation, and it was we should let's give it a shot, let's try it, and it and it did really really well for many years. Um, then Southern Charm was originally called Southern Gentlemen, and it was these really strong group of men that were just like didn't want to grow up. And they lived in Charleston and they, they were just uh, so interesting and different than any of our other characters. And the idea was, um, after testing the show, that we should bring women in um, and balance it. So it became Southern Charm. So it wasn't going to be just the men. It was going to be men and women that uh, were in their lives. And, um, and that's how that came together. That did really well, too. So Jerry, you mentioned Andy Cohen's name, and we know we know most of us, I think, in in America know Andy Cohen. I mean, you have to be living under a rock not to know who he is, right? Um, and he has, uh, you know, watch what happens live. How how did that even become a show? Can you talk about that? Sure. So Andy was a business person, um, you know, who had um, who was you know working on this. They had a development and production um, head of current current production. And, um, but also had an interest in being on our talent. And we, it was kind of the beginning of the um, digital shows. And so we started having uh, sponsored digital after shows for things like uh, after Top Chef, we would have a, um, Andy would interview uh, the Top Chef, uh, you know, winner or fan favorite. And we started doing these small little digital shows and then um, the idea was he had, he had been doing a blog about what was going on in production and what is, was happening in pop culture. And it was really entertaining. And that was on BravoTV.com. So the idea was, let's try um, a, a show, you know, uh, put all of these, um, the Top Chef After Show, as well as other, uh, you know, companion shows to our originals. Let's put it all in one digital show. And the decision was going to be called Watch What Happens Live. It had to be live. And uh, it started as digital, then I moved it to midnight. And uh, eventually I moved it like once a week, then twice a week. And then I remember pitching to move it to 11 o'clock because I really needed it out of the show. And they're like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> but I, but I, I did, and then it did well, and it was great. And, and they said, yes, you can do it, but just for a few weeks. And it ended up doing well enough to keep it 11. And we had it on a couple nights at 11. Then eventually we decided we should go five or six nights. 
So we did. Kobe, um, started, Kobe started barking like any casual podcast would start. <laughs> <laughs> My dog was barking in the background. <laughs> so I have a question too. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, Watch What Happens Live is born because, you know, it, it, it was a digital show before, right? Mm -hmm. So how did, how did social media play a big role in really building these, these franchises and these housewives? Because, you know, they became they became larger than life. Like, you know, you and I have spoken offline about, you know, Kim Zolciak. Um, I, I like, I, I mirror my, 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 um, my little uh, Coca-Cola drinking on my red solo cup like, like she does. Yeah. Um, but we, we learn about their drama offline too on social media, you know, them with the, like Nene Leaks likes to say the shade um, across Instagram and Facebook. And, you know, right now it's TikTok, but, you know, a couple of years ago it was Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter. So how did social play in really, you know, kind of accelerating the popularity of these franchises? It was a, a really amazing timing because as all of these shows at Bravo were growing, um, in 2005, um, Lawrence Lazic, who was our president at Bravo, recruited Lisa Shaw. And Lisa Shaw came from NBC News. And she built out our social media and um, and all our digital uh, world and um, you know really was quite aggressive um, on that also our marketing execs Jason Clarman initially and then Ellen Stone they really just leaned into um, Instagram uh, Facebook then Instagram um, and you know it was perfect timing you know and uh, in Twitter and then we were managing talent uh, in different ways because now there are you know, there's tweets that are involved, you know, incorporated into storylines. There's, um, there's fights coming out of, you know, posts, um, you know, it just added a whole other layer of drama, but the, you know, the shows came of age in the um, mid 2000s in the 2010s, just as social media was kind of escalating. So we really, you know, Lisa was, you know, and, and others really drove that. And, you know, that uh, making sure we were constantly, um, you know, had a social media presence and it worked, it worked out well. It helped grow the shows quite a bit and helped um, keep the story going when even after the season was over and build anticipation for the next season. So it was a critical part of our, our machine and our strategy. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I think it's critical to have that social media component to anything right now. I mean, you can't, you can't really launch anything without having that component. I mean... I see it yeah. all the time on Instagram. I discover I'm an avid online shopper for the most part. I discover like all these boutiques online and they have lives during the day. Like you really cannot build your business if you don't have a social media platform. Absolutely. So shifting gears, uh, yeah. Jerry, you put out a, is it a monthly? It's a monthly pop culture overview yeah, so, that really yeah. has become the Bible on LinkedIn uh, and tell us where that idea came from and tell us how you're able to gather all this information Specifically, that now we live in such a cluttered um, content world with streaming. Talk a little bit about that. So it really was something that I always did as a passion project since I was little. Um, so you know that was I kept track of. I wanted to keep up with what was next. You know what was next in every aspect of a, of a pop culture. So I kept my own lists. You know as a as a kid, and I would, um, and eventually when I was an MTV. Um, I guess NBC, even before that, NBC, MTV, definitely VH1. I would always do some form of a report. 
uh, on the competition. And um, in those days, it was more about TV competition. By the time I got to Bravo, I would host presentations um, with my staff where we would build for months, you know, uh, really deep analysis of what was happening um, in the marketplace. And we'd look at Broadway and we'd look at, um, we'd look at movies and we'd look at sometimes video games. And, um, and we tried to, you know, as well as all the different shows and all the competitors and um, the team would help present it. You know, we would all present it together and they'd become these uh, presentations that were often 90 minutes or two hours. And we would do them maybe two to three times a year. We did it for many, many different departments. And those were pretty popular. They were called pop culture previews at Bravo and at NBC Universal. So then um, when I was, uh, when I finished up at Bravo in 2019, I decided that I would um, keep doing my own version of it. And I called them the pop culture overviews and they're monthly installments of just what's happening monthly across pop culture. And then I did a lot of presentations for different companies um, that were more like what I used to at Bravo, where I would do 90 minute customized presentations for companies and sort of specialize in a certain type of uh, audience or, uh, you know, some, you know, so be uh, a special presentation that I did for my contacts at Netflix or Disney or BET or wherever. And um, it was fun. That was fun to sort of work on those. How do I well, do it? I've always had. Them. Yeah, I'm still working on them. I um, I have uh, I've had people help me. It's not just me alone. There's there's usually um, at least one other person who always one at least one other person who helps execute them for me and research. Them. Yeah, I mean but, yeah. it's a lot to keep up with. It's a lot. Yeah, it's great though. I um, it forces me to study everything still. So you know it is really important for me to sort of read everything. And it, if I have the mission to do that for those reports. Then, then um, it forces me to stay up on everything. So, you know, we've taken a journey with you um, on this podcast. You talk to us your media beginnings. Then we talk about your time, you know, being at um, Paramount and at um, NBC Universal. We talk about what you do with the pop culture overview. So if you were to have to write a book, what would it be called? Uh, <laughs> what would the book be called? <laughs> um, How about what's next? Yeah, yeah, what's next? You know what I used to, I, I did a presentation at, at, um, at Bravo um, on my 30th anniversary, around the first, my 30th anniversary. And I kept call, saying that it was interesting to be in the room where it happened. You know, I can't say I, I was, you know, I, I was near a lot of amazing um, executives, very talented executives, and watched a lot of great things sort of, happen in meetings and i i always thought that was you know just like the hamilton song um the room where it i was in the room where it happened so you know going all the way through my career um and that was fun to, to sort of see things that happened you know ideas that happened uh across multiple people or by accident were solutions for other things and then they ended up becoming really big deals um or, or things that we assumed were going to be big deals that really did not work out, but they were, they were so always so interesting. You know, he never could really predict what was going to happen next. So my book maybe it would be called the room where it happens. 
Oh, it sounds it sounds like another book somebody I think wrote. Didn't John? Didn't um? What was it? Bolton write something like that? Um, he probably did. Yeah, a couple <laughs> years ago after he left politics. <laughs> so Jerry, one key takeaway um from this whole journey of yours, you want to share that with our listeners? Like, what's your big takeaway? There has to be <clears throat> an aha moment for you, um, you know, in this journey. What is that? Uh, probably persistence. Nothing, um, nothing is easy and nothing is quick. Um, and it took me many, many, many years to get uh, higher level jobs. And so I would say, you know, it, it, uh, just you have to be really persistent and be passionate. Um, and you have to study. You have to read everything. That's, it's not just your job and what's going on in your company. You have to sort of look at the marketplace and, and look at pop culture and um, and sort of, you know, sort of try to make your own predictions and assumptions of what you think will happen, you know, or what and is a good what, idea for your company. How do you see, I think this is my last question before we say goodbye. You know, the streaming, there's been so many articles, books written about it. It's constantly on LinkedIn and across every single media publication, you know. What does that streaming landscape look like? Do we we remain with only a few players? Will people have to merge in this game? Because we see so many options, yet I think only the big will survive. Your prediction? I, I think I agree with you. I think, it, um, you know, Peacock just had a really good earnings call last week. So, you know, I don't think we really know a lot yet. It's still very, very early days. But I think that last year we learned that There was too much clutter and streaming and streaming scripted shows. And it was just so many brands had so many shows and there were, it was, you couldn't consume it all. And then I see that we never really go back to something a few months later that we didn't, you know, lots of things got lost in the shuffle and, you know, we don't really look back and, Oh, I want to find that show I heard about from a few months ago. They just, we keep moving. So it wasn't a sustainable model based on that, unless they start, you know, kind of going back to earlier library product and or moving their prod, library products to other platforms, which may happen. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's sustainable right now. And I do think there would be fewer, and I do think there'll be a lot more unscripted and documentaries and true crime um, and less scripted, it seems like, at least for this upcoming year. Um, you know, just because it's the cost of the scripted, you know, I'm sure mm -hmm. it was in plus there's a strike but looming, a potential um, strike looming in Hollywood. So, you know, I think that there's going to be, I think you'll see uh, much, much more unscripted coming on all the streamers. So this year, I, I think that that will happen. And then eventually probably mergers, probably more and more mergers and consolidating, I would guess. So any parting words, Jerry, to all our listeners and anyone that may be looking to get into a media career at this point in time where it's all multimedia. You know, I, I teach classes at FIU from, you know, time to time. And I hear a lot of the students don't even want to be reporters on camera anymore. They want to be behind the scenes. So your advice. Uh, advice to students as to what, what they should do. It's yeah, like if, if you have a young professional come up to you and say, hey, you know, Jerry, can you give me some advice? I want to go to being a producer at this 
you know, this point in time with, you know, the Netflix of the world and, you know, Disney Plus, you know, Warner Brothers Discovery, HBO, Canela Media, um, yeah. you know, any of the players out there, like, what would your advice be? Internships, always internships, internships right? Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, that was what we, it helped it me for the, sure. Yeah, definitely. And, and many, as many as you can to get the experience to figure out what you like and don't like. Uh, you learn so much in, in an internship, even about where you don't, what you don't, where you don't fit in. Uh, I think that's it. I know, it's critical. true. It's critical to understand that um, and what part of the business you like best. You know, is it management? Is it is it uh, production? Is it, um, you know, operations? There's so many different areas. And uh, so internships are great. And then being flexible in, in entry level as well. You know, you know, continue to work. You have to be so patient and persistent in, in level jobs as well. And yeah, it's it's a it's a tough market. There's a lot of opportunities. It is it's tougher than when we started, Jerry. <laughs> yeah, even though there's a lot more options. Yes. You know, YouTube opens Very up opportunities. And, you know, there seems like there's more. Uh, even TikTok and all of these other places, they mm -hmm. do they do seem to offer more opportunities, but. Um, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people, uh, in the game and then, and now there's been a lot of layoffs. So, you know, it's a little, little challenging right now, but for, for people starting there's, it's really not, it's still exciting. There's still so many, there's still so many opportunities. There is. And I want to thank you, Jerry, for taking the time to join Tech Conversations and talk to us about this amazing journey that you've had in media and that we will continue to watch. So thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks, Maggie. Nice to see you. Okay. Thank you. Likewise. Bye-bye. The sound effects for this episode of the podcast were created by Anna Kamakaro.